There we go. So as I was saying, it's December 31st, except that it's already January 1st in New Zealand and we're coming around and that's good. And this is um, the Torah portion today is the very last portion of the book of Genesis. So let's say a blessing for studying Torah together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, our God, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and has given us the commandment to engage in the words of Torah. <clears throat> Excuse me. This very last portion is called Vayechi, and it means, and he lived. It begins by describing the last 17 years of Jacob's life. Uh, the first 17 years are the years when Joseph was born until he was taken away from his father and by his brothers and sent into slavery. And then the, uh, um, the first 17 years of Joseph's life, which are, you know, we might say are Jacob's happiest. And then the last 17 years, Jacob is reunited with Joseph and the entire family transplants to Egypt. And in this portion, um, uh, Jacob, it's time for Jacob to die. And so he summons Joseph and says, bring your two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. I wanna give them a blessing. And we're not gonna focus on this chapter this year because I, I'm always looking for something that I haven't necessarily kind of bored in on before. So uh, we won't be focusing on this, but I want you to know what's going on. Um, and there's a beautiful poignant scene of uh, Jacob remembering his life and wanting to give blessings to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And um, it's an elaborate story where he intentionally gives the firstborn blessing to the younger son once again. The pattern of Genesis is just continues. And uh, then um, he summons all his children, all 12 sons, to uh, receive their final charge. And the next chapter, chapter 49, is a poem of Jacob describing each of his sons. I don't know if you'd call it a blessing necessarily, <laughs> uh, because he's very hard on the ones who have betrayed him. And uh, then it says, and when Jacob had finished blessing his children, uh, he gathered his legs into the bed and he breathed his last and he joined his ancestors. And he had also made Joseph swear to bury him back up in Canaan in the cave of the Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah and um, uh, Isaac and Rebecca and Leah are buried. And so in chapter, uh, in the next chapter, uh, chapter 50, which is the last chapter of Genesis, Joseph asks for Pharaoh's permission to bring his father back up to Canaan uh, to, um, so that they can bury him there. And a 
large retinue of chariots and uh, lots of people go up to Hebron, to the cave where they lay Jacob to rest with his uh, wife Leah and with his ancestors. And this is where I actually want to come in and look at the next passage. But before I do, I'll just say what happens in this next passage is very close to the end of the book, after which point there's a kind of a coda that's, that describes Joseph's death at the age of 110 and his making his insisting that his brothers vow to uh, bring his bones up also to the land of Israel. Um, and uh, the book ends, book of Genesis ends. And I wanna say that um, there's, a, a, there's just a marvelous story arc to the whole book of Genesis from, and God said, let there be light. So from the very beginning into this um, extended um, uh, drama of a family, our ancestors. And uh, I, it, it's really got a really powerful um, story arc to me and structure. But today, as I said, I wanna focus on these verses, which I'm gonna share now. Okay, I hope that's, is that large enough for people to see on your screen or should I make it bigger? Ellen, can you tell me what you see? It looks okay? Okay. All right, well, um, let me put these boxes down at the bottom. I gotta, come on, come on, get down there. <laughs> there. Okay, so if anyone needs to, uh, you can type in the chat because we're going to be looking at the text quite a bit. So as soon as they buried Jacob, in chapter 50, verse 14, it has these, this passage. And Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. Now Joseph's brothers saw that their father had died. And they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and return to us all the evil that we did to him. So, Many years have gone by, 17 years since Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, but they are concerned that he has simply been by, revealed himself and told them not to fear, right? That happened when he revealed himself to them. Don't fear. Even if you meant me harm, God meant it for the good. So it's okay, I'll take care of you. But now that Jacob has died, they think that perhaps Joseph was just biding his time till dad was dead. And now is going to take his revenge. So they sent a message to Joseph to say, your father commanded us before his death saying, so shall you say to Joseph, please forgive now your brother's transgression and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please 
forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Um, now, please note, and this is what we're going to be, we're going to be focusing on this, this interaction today, that nowhere in the text do we have any indication that Jacob said anything of the sort to his other sons, right? So the assumption that we can make and that the, all the commentaries make is that they were fabricating this. His brothers also went and fell before him and they said, behold, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid for am I in place of God? Indeed, you intended evil against me, but God designed it for good in order to bring about what is at present to keep a great populace alive. So now do not fear, I will sustain you and your small children. And thus he did comfort them and speak straight to their hearts. And that's the end of this um, uh, little segment. Uh, so it, it, I think I'll keep sharing, but again, if you have um, anything you wanna add or ask, you can always type it into the chat. Okay, so here's this passage where Joseph then expresses exactly what he'd expressed 17 years before. He's been consistent in his um, expression and his actions since that time. And yet the brothers still are, um, uh, don't believe him and don't trust him. Uh, now, I'd want to condemn the brothers, you know, for, uh, first of all, fine, come on, get over it already. Hasn't he demonstrated this to you? How much more, what else should he do? Not only that, making up a story that their dead father didn't say in order to curry favor with Joseph. It's like the whole thing is like, ugh. And I don't think you'd be, um, uh, you know, far off given the history of the brothers' behaviors to put it in this category of them just being self-interested again. And, uh, you know, like, uh, give me a break. And Joseph just comes off smelling like a rose here. He's unbelievable. He is so past this that just the idea that they still feel guilty and that his father felt that he had to say this because he's believing what they say and it makes him cry. And, mm -hmm. uh, Abigail writes, is this message to forgive the proof text at funerals to forgive? Good question, I didn't see that. I didn't see, a, 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 in my researching these, uh, I didn't see that link, but it is a um, custom to, to forgive one another if one can when attending a funeral given that we never know um, when our moment comes. So let's make, a, a, make a, let's, let's uh, repair things as much as we can now. Abigail has recent experience. Abigail, yes, I think that would be the reflection for you of your really immediate experience on this Torah portion. 
um, a beautiful forgiveness scene uh, during the Shiva. So thank you. Um, but the commentaries don't condemn the brothers. Um, Pauline says, no, necessarily there is something else going on. Fear embedded in a crucial and deep relationship. The teaching on forgiveness is much more complex. Not Indeed, uh, Joan, a proof text is when you wanna find a line in um, the scriptures or in some other older book that makes your point. Like uh, we'll say, just the way Abraham did such and so, that becomes the proof text for the commandment for us to welcome the stranger. You know, that kind of thing, that's the proof text. Oh, Desiree, so you're driving back from moving your son into his New York City apartment. Wow, that's a big deal. I'm glad, I hope the connection stays and you can keep stick with this class. And Blaze says, so they say that forgiveness liberates the one who forgives, but not the forgiven necessarily. Not if they're still carrying their burden of guilt and shame, it's true. But what I wanna focus on, and these are really rich points, and what I wanna focus on is that the commentaries about this in the traditional literature don't condemn the brothers for making up a story. Ah, one more comment on forgiveness, which is such an endlessly important and engaging topic. Some things should never be forgiven, but that doesn't mean you uh, hold on to it either. Right, forgiveness as we've explored for decades now, is actually the act of letting go your own anger and pain so that you're not constantly being poisoned by the hurt that happened long ago. That doesn't mean, forget. it's not forgive and forget, but forgive. Now the rabbis and Rashi, if you don't know who Rashi is, Rashi is the great, um, the, 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 the most important commentator on the Torah from the 11th century. And his teachings are always drawn from earlier teachings. Comments on this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, what does the text mean by saw? They perceived the effects of his death on Joseph. They were used to dining with Joseph and were accustomed to Joseph's keeping in close terms with them out of respect for his father. But as soon as Jacob died, Joseph ceased to be on close terms with them. Oh, interesting. Rashi is explaining that the brothers did perceive a change in Joseph's behavior. Um, and, uh, but the Midrash that he's quoting, which is this next paragraph, um, explains that Joseph's motivations continue to be humble, but are misinterpreted by his brothers. Here's the Midrash. What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong that we did him? Rabbi Levi said that they feared this because Joseph no longer invited them to dine with him. 
said Rabbi Tanchuma, he meant it for the sake of heaven, meaning he was doing what he thought was right. For Joseph said to himself, father used to seat me higher than Judah, his king, and higher than Reuben, who was the firstborn. Now it is not right that I should sit higher than them. So he stopped presiding over their group meals. But the brothers understood matters differently and said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us? So the, the, the commentaries want to explain that the brothers are legitimately, and they're describing way, reasons why that might have happened, including a change in Joseph's behavior, perhaps, which Joseph means not to alienate them, but the brothers experience it as a distancing. Here's another midrash. This one also has that mis, um, misinterpretation of someone's actions. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, <clears throat> excuse me, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us? What, they, what did they see that made them afraid? Because the key word here they're playing off is when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. Of course they knew their father was dead. What is this all about? What did they see? As they were returning from burying their father, they saw that Joseph turned off the road and went to look at the pit into which his brothers had cast him. So remember, this is Joseph's first trip in decades to his home. He has not been back. Picture the poignancy of that. And he, he, they're on the road and he looks in the pit. Upon seeing this, they said, he still bears a grudge in his heart. Now that our father's dead, he will make us his hatred of us felt. But in fact, Joseph's motive was a pious one, says the Midrash. He wanted to utter a blessing for the miracle wrought for him in that place. I love this storytelling. Right? These are old, old interpretations, and they're they're just as evocative as the Torah story itself. Um, uh, let me read what Blaze said. When a patriarch or matriarch of the family dies, and it was he or she who held the family together, the family is not the same. For example, it doesn't gather for family occasions or holidays, etc. Of course, Blaze, thank you. And who's gonna pick up the ball? But that's what happens. Who was the glue holding the family together? That's a really important comment, thank you. So the brothers might be experiencing that. And as Ellen Weaver adds, and their own guilt and shame twists their perception, making them see a judging rather than an openness that is where Joseph is, right? Joseph is clearly in a space of he, the past is the past, and yet, uh, the brothers uh, can't can't let it go. Um, thank you for those comments. Um, let me make sure I got that. Good, good. Okay, so there are those beautiful midrashim about the brothers' concerned. Pauline, Reb Pauline says, "This is what happens when we make assumptions." 
an ass out of you and me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, assumptions make an ass out of us. Very good. Uh, all right. So there's not harsh judgment from the commentaries, just an, uh, a, a sense of um, how did this happen? Well, just as Blaze says, it happens, right? The glue of the family is gone and now what? And the old fears arise and the old concerns. And there's Joseph coming home for the first time in decades, rem remembering his life. I can just, boy, is that a story that, can you imagine putting that journey back to Canaan to bury his father in Joseph's voice? That would be amazing. Uh, and his brothers see him looking in that pit and all they remember, of course, is their sin. Okay. But once again, the, what I want to ang angle for today is that Jewish tradition does not condemn the brothers for their action. In fact, um, here's another Rashi comment. In the message, that the brothers fabricate. They say, your father left this instruction. And Rashi says, they modified the words of Jacob in this matter, in the interest of peace. Okay, that's where I want us to remember, that's the takeaway I wanna share with you today, which we're gonna explore for the rest of the class. For Jacob did not instruct us, since Joseph was not suspect in his eyes. Okay, so the, the, it's clear from the Midrashic teachings that Rashi is quoting that the brothers are fabricating these words of their father, but they are doing it in the interest of peace. And the Hebrew phrase for that is mipnei darkei shalom, or mipnei shalom, which means for the sake of the paths of peace or simply for the sake of peace. Now, here's the passage in the Talmud that Rashi is drawing from. Remember, the Talmud is several centuries earlier than Rashi. When it's bolded here, those are the words of the Talmud and the... Um, uh, when it's not bolded, these are um, uh, additional expansion of the text in Sepharia, which I drew this from, to help us understand the very terse way the Talmud is written. I'm going to read Pauline's comment. It is very hard to ask forgiveness, while Joseph finds a way out of fear the brothers cannot. So they are carefully... Not sure what you meant there, Pauline. But fabricating is their way of saying we want a relationship. Sometimes it is best to just say we're so sorry. Right, nicely put. And Ellen Weaver um, says Shalom Bayit. Yes, Shalom Bayit is the category of harmony in the home, which is a central feature. Uh, central is not the right word I want to say. And, um, the pursuit of peace and, and, 
and is considered to um, override other mitzvahs, um, if like truth. <laughs> if speaking harsh truth is going to fracture um, the paths of peaceful coexistence, Jewish tradition says, don't do it. Find another way to express yourself. Um, the other category of mitzvah that overrides other commandments is saving a life. Pikuach nefesh. So, pursuing peace and saving a life. Um, we need a new word from then Trump. When you're playing cards, right? We got to come up with a, a new word. Please help me. Um, uh, um, they um, override other mitzvahs, um, and you can actually um, transgress other commandments in order to either save a life or pursue the path of peace. Take priority over, thank you. And they are, um, there are a lot of examples. So now let's read this passage in the Talmud that Rashi is citing. Rabbi Il'ah said in the name of Rabbi Elazar, son of Rabbi Shimon, it is permitted for a person to depart from the truth in a matter that will bring peace. As it is stated, your father commanded before he died, saying, so shall you say to Joseph, please pardon your brother's crimes, etc." Jacob never issued this command, but his sons falsely attributed this statement to him in order to preserve peace between them and Joseph. So the Talmud validates the brother's actions, saying that it's, it's okay, it's more than okay, it's permitted to um, bend the truth in order to maintain peace. If, the, if telling the whole truth is going to upset things in a way that won't be of lasting value. Um, yes, it doesn't say lie. And the rabbis have lots of compensatory sayings. Um, uh, uh, Betty said, so this removes it from being a lie. The point is, is that it's a situational judgment. This is really important, everyone. What, what Jewish tradition presents to us is that we have to judge every situation and determine what we're going to say that will move things toward the best goal. Right? If we are rigid and rigorous, say, about always telling the truth um, at the expense of other people's well-being, the Torah doesn't consider that to be a virtue. What Jewish tradition considers to be a virtue is our ability to choose our words in a way that promote harmony. And sometimes that means expressing everything, and sometimes it means being very careful about how we say things. Um, and we all know this. It's like, it's a balancing act. Uh, Let's see, I'll read some comments. 
One problem, says Roni, with apologizing is the recipient of the apology often takes joy in the, abusing the person apologizing for the original mistake and beats the apologizer over and over rather than gracefully accepting the apology. So both parties feel ennobled by the communication. Well said. Joan says, here's a case where alternative facts work when serving the cause of peace. Right, and you'll see as I was, I'm not gonna have time in, in the, I had a fascinating time preparing for this class because the rabbis say, for example, I'll tell you this Hasidic story, which I didn't include in the um, sheet here, which is, it's this Hasidic story about how Rabbi so-and-so, I'm forgetting his name, and his wife did not get along at all. And um, he would say, I want lentils. His wife would make peas. He would say, I want peas. Davka, his wife would make lentils. And they were always like this. This is, a, the Talmud's got lots of, uh, uh, good stories like this. And uh, so this rabbi's son takes it upon himself that when he's working with his dad, his dad says, I want lentils tonight. Tell your mom. He goes home and tells the mother that her that dad wants peas and she makes lentils. And so finally the dad confronts him on this. How are you talking? How come you're getting, how come I can't get what I want but you are when I, and the, the son explains to him what he's doing. And the dad says, well, thanks, but don't make a habit of it because a habit of lying is going to take you down a bad path, right? I really like this story. It's just a funny story, but the point is, no, don't make a habit of it. A relationship that's based on deception ultimately is also not going to bring peace, right? So it, uh, it's really interesting. Um, let me read some more uh, as people are writing stuff in. Roberta says, Joseph, just like all of us, continues to be tested by God, indeed. And Myrna says, what happens when the truth comes out? Another good question. We have to be very, very careful about this, like all the matriarchs and patriarchs, says Roberta. And Blaise says, love is wanting for all concern the highest good, radical love. Yes, uh, yes, I agree with that. Don't make a habit of lying. Is Benjamin mentioned after Jacob's death? Mm, no, after Jacob dies, the story goes to its conclusion. So is Benjamin among the brothers who are Where's Benjamin in all this? One would assume that he's not in this cadre of brothers who are worried about how Joseph's gonna treat him because Benjamin wasn't uh, responsible in the first place, but that's a good question. And Charlotte says, but how do you have the wisdom to determine when to bend the truth? And can't keeping the peace lead to covering up and feeding shame in families? Yes and yes. And yet all of us know uh, that we're careful if we have long and beautiful relationships, they're based on truthfulness, but they're also, I've learned when to keep my mouth shut, right? I, I was, I remember I, I came of age in the um, let it all hang out 70s and uh, I was an idiot. 
I was a jerk. Um, I had a lot to learn about what you say and you don't say to somebody. So we all know that this is a complicated uh, subject. Um, Pauline says, so I wonder as we move into the new year, do we have family? We need to find words of peace after the last few years we had. What will the words be that we can use for the sake of heaven, for the sake of peace? Yes, that is the prayer that I wanna come out of this day with. Um, and Blaise says that the word is discernment. So you ask God for help, whatever God means to you. Beautiful. Okay, so let me skip this next one in the interest of time and go to this one where it says, it was taught in the school of Rabbi Ishmael. This is how much the rabbis make this a teaching thing. They say, even God bends the truth at times. It was taught in the school of Rabbi Ishmael, great is peace as even the Holy One, blessed be he departed from the truth for it. As initially it is written, Sarah said to Abraham, okay, God says to Sarah, you're gonna have a child. And Sarah laughs and said, and my Lord, meaning Abraham, is old, how are we gonna have a child? In other words, she's not laughing about herself as much as about how old her husband is. But then God goes back to Abraham and says, Sarah said, and I am old, speaking about herself. The Midrash said, Tractate Yuvamot says, God adjusted Sarah's words in order to spare Abraham hurt feelings that might lead Abraham and Sarah to quarrel. Okay, this is where we're talking about bending the truth. God's talking to Sarah and Sarah says, I'm gonna have a baby with him. And it, God does not go back to Abraham and say, I've got to tell you the truth, Abraham. Sarah thinks you can't do it, right? God doesn't do that. Just like none of us would do it unless we wanna cause strife. God says, Sarah said she's old and she doesn't know if it can go. You know, it's like, when do we bend the truth? Well, even God does it, says the rabbis in this passage. Now, here's the most famous passage about this subject that uh, many of you will be familiar with. In Tractate Ketubot, there's a, a debate between Hillel and Shammai. How do we dance before the bride and praise her at a wedding? The Academy of Shammai say, the bride as she is. In other words, we praise whatever good qualities we genuinely perceive. And the Academy of Hillel say, a lovely and gracious bride. That's all you say. <laughs> whatever kind of bride it is, you say a lovely and gracious bride. The Academy of Shammai said to the Academy of Hillel, and what if the bride is lame or blind and you say to her, lovely and gracious, give me a break. Does the Torah not say in Exodus, distance yourself from falsehood? And the discussion goes on and it says, Hillel's position is given precedence. From here, the sages said, a person's disposition should always be empathetic with all people. Um, that's where we're talking about how we choose our words. How are our words going to land? Now, again, I'm surprised that the rabbis don't condemn 
the um uh the brothers for for making this story up but they don't for them this was something that they they look for reasons why the brothers might have done it for me given the given my my uh, orientation and the time i live in i wouldn't lie i would go to them i would go and say hey i need to tell you how concerned i still am about x or y you know i've been practicing i statements for decades so be it they didn't do i statements like that back back in this in the in 2000 years ago it's okay there were other ways to do it um what feels inauthentic rob uh when you have a chance or you can unmute yourself and tell me and meanwhile i'm going to go on because hillel's whole personality and his whole teachings were are 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 be of the disciples of aaron loving peace and pursuing peace loving the creatures and bringing them closer to torah and again here is this sort of morally iffy story because these are in a way iffy stories aren't they when rob says inauthentic um the midrash says what does hillel mean be of the disciples of aaron loving peace and pursuing peace in the midrash avot de rabbi natan they explained how aaron loved peace when he would see two people quarreling he would go to each one of them and how would he bring people closer to the torah when he would know about someone that had committed a sin he would befriend him and show him a friendly demeanor and that man would be embarrassed and say to himself if that righteous man would know my evil deeds how much would he distance himself from me and as a result of this that man would change for the better and this is what the prophet testifies about Aaron in peace and in straightness did he walk with me and he brought back many from sinning okay uh, let's see what have i got next year all right um i'm going to stop sharing for a minute so we can see each other and then i'll get on to the next so i liked studying this today because it it is it's it's is that how you're supposed to do it um are you supposed to dissemble when do you dissemble when and why is keeping the peace more important than lancing the boil of uh, uh of uh untrusting um if we want to maintain real relations cordial relations with certain people am i still freezing can you hear me now 
Okay, I got a little message that my internet connection was unstable. The the internet in the synagogue has been um, um, poor the last couple of days and we Spectrum can't tell us what's wrong. All right, let me know if I freeze up again. Um, so as I was saying, the the answer to this question requires great discernment. But emet, truth-telling, is not the only factor in, um, in, a, uh, a, in, a, in a good relationship. In a, um, and it's up to us to know what's behind our motivation to tell the truth. Do we need to just get it off our chest? Are we doing it to stick a dagger in someone? Um, are we doing it to be self-righteous? Uh, are we doing it out of resentment? Are we doing it to pursue peace? The art of diplomacy is an ancient one, says Joan, and that's what we're talking about. And that's what the rabbis are talking about. Now, what I want to show you now are some other Talmudic texts that expand on this beyond individual relationships and talk about what it means to pursue the paths of peace. As many of you know, when we conclude the Torah service, when we put the Torah away, we say, um, a tree of life for all who grasp onto it, Torah is. Its pathways are pleasantness and all its paths are peace. So for the rabbis, Torah had to be a pathway towards peaceful relationships. If it wasn't, it wasn't Torah. Uh, Robert says in nonviolent communication, Speaking truthfully doesn't mean you tell what you think is wrong with me. Well said. Like when someone says something mean and then says, I'm just being honest. What is our motivation? Diane, would you like to say something? Years ago at, at, the, at our Havara, before we had the congregation even, uh, Rabbi Goldie. Milgram? Yeah. She was talking to us and she told us this story about Loshan Hara and how you shouldn't say anything bad about people. And it is, it is, I remember because it bothered me so much. She gave an example of one time when someone she knew was being interviewed for a job at some other shul and she was called to give, uh, you know, a reference. And uh, she said something that she thought was going to be great about this person, but it turned out it was the opposite, really, of what they were looking for. So the message I got from that was never say anything about anybody, and, and that doesn't really work for me. But, you know, so this is sort of the same thing. You may do something you say, you, you may say something you think is for the sake of peace, and Yep. There we go. I'm constantly confused. Oh, uh, good. Because <laughs> it's a moving target. It's a moving target. And Linda K made a beautiful comment related to that, which is that it says, shalom. all its pathways are peace. So Linda K says, so maybe there are many 
paths of peace and many different truths. Exactly. We are not being given the rule book. We're being told that somehow we have to hold primary on our minds the pursuit of both truth, truth and of peace. And there you go. You know, it's, it's so complicated. And about Lashon Hara is more about gossip, not addressing the person directly. That's true, Barb. That's true. Yeah. This is a complicated subject. Pauline says, peace comes from the word shlemut, wholeness. When we look trying to achieve peace, justice, wholeness, there are times for the sake of peace that there needs to be anger if we need to rebalance. It's all one of the pathways. That's right. Shalom does not mean in Hebrew um, uh, stasis. It doesn't mean even necessarily, it doesn't mean inaction. It doesn't mean lack of conflict. It means a sense of wholeness that we're carrying with us. This ability to empathize with as large a circle as possible. Tiferet in Kabbalah is the balancing of truth and peace. So in the few minutes that I've left, I know I grabbed a bit off two more than I could chew, but I want to share with you some, some really striking teachings from the Talmud. Let me share my screen again. In the Mishnah, which is the core text of the Talmud from the third century, there's a whole long section of this. I only took out a little bit of it. These are the matters that the sages instituted on account of the ways of peace, that is to foster peace and prevent strife and controversy. At public readings of the Torah, a priest reads first and after him a Levite and after him an Israelite. The sages instituted this order on account of the ways of peace so that people should not quarrel about who is the most distinguished member of the community. Adjoining of courtyards is placed in an old house where it had regularly been placed on account of the ways of peace. Okay, you may have a zoning permit. You may be right. You may, you don't do it. This is, okay. A cistern that is nearest to the irrigation channel that supplies water to several pits or field is filled first on account of the ways of peace. They established a fixed order for the irrigation of fields so that people would not quarrel over who is given precedence. Animals, birds or fish that were caught in traps are not acquired by the one who set the traps until he actually takes possession of them. Okay, so they're technically not his until he claims them. Nevertheless, if another person comes and takes them, it is considered robbery on account of the ways of peace. If a poor person is gleaning olives at the top of an olive tree, remember what gleaning is? After the harvest, the way the poor would support themselves is by harvesting whatever was left over. And that was theirs by law. Uh, if a person glean, poor person gleans olives at the top of an olive tree and olives fall to the ground under the tree, then taking those olives that are beneath it is considered robbery on account of the ways of peace. 
Listen to this. One does not protest against poor Gentiles who come to take gleanings, forgotten sheaves, and the produce in the corner of the field, which is given to the poor, although the Torah means them exclusively for the Jewish poor on account of the ways of peace. The rabbis are writing this. One of the, advantage, one of the blessings of the Talmud and of rabbinic writings in general is that they are writing in the Roman Empire. And they are living, Palestine in the Roman Empire has Jewish communities, Christian communities, pagan communities, people from all over, and they all have to live together. And a lot of Jewish law gets formulated in this early, I guess you'd call it pluralistic um, society that they're living in. So poor people who are Gentiles, you let them glean. I know the Torah doesn't say that, why? on account of the ways of peace. The next Mishnah says, one woman may lend to another who is suspected not to observe properly the laws of the sabbatical year, a flour sieve, a winnow, a handmill, and a stove, but she may not assist her to winnow nor to grind. Listen to this. It's the sabbatical year in the Holy Land. No Jew is supposed to um, be working their land. What if your neighbor is? It says that she can lend um, her tools to this other person who's breaking the law. But she can't do it with her, but she can lend her stuff. It says, for example, the wife of a chaver. Chaver is um, a rabbi who scrupulously observes the detailed laws of tithes and ritual purity may lend to the wife of an unlearned person a flour sieve or a winnow and may aid her to winnow, to grind, or to sift. But as soon as water is poured over the flour, she may not further assist her, for we may not aid those who transgress the law. Okay, these are details of Jewish practice. You have a neighbor who's not keeping kosher right. You have a neighbor who's not doing this right. And they ask, can we borrow something? Lend it to them. Don't, you can't do it with them because you'll be transgressing. But you can't say, you're, you're a disgrace. Get out of my sight. All of these are permitted acts due to ways of peace. Here's the next one. We may aid non-Jews who work in the fields during the sabbatical year. Okay, so um, they're living in a society where there are non-Jews next door who work their land during the sabbatical year. And you can support them. You can, aid doesn't mean you work with them. Aid means they need, some, they need a cup of sugar, you give it to them. They need to borrow your, your plow, you give it to them. We may not aid an Israelite in that way. But we do ask how he is. So there's an Israelite who's like, what's the best example? You're, you, you're, a, you're an observant Jew and you run into, um, uh, and it's Yom Kippur and you run into your friend who's Jewish who's eating a ham sandwich, right? You, you say, hey, hi. 
Why? Due to the ways of peace. If Torah is all her paths are peace, then how do you do this? I love this whole bunch of teachings. Um, a Deborah says a distinction is necessary between appeasement and seeking peace. And oh, before I read those, I want to read you one more. This one really takes it to another level. This is a supplementary text from the same time, third century. A city which includes both Jews and idolaters. The leaders should collect money from both Jews and idolaters for the sake of peace. And they should support the poor of both idolaters and Jews for the sake of peace. And they should eulogize and bury the dead of idolaters for the sake of peace. They should comfort the mourners from among the idolaters for the sake of peace. This is the description of how we're supposed to live together. Um, very challenging and beautiful, isn't it? Rabbi Jonathan? Yes. Um, I, I think this is very interesting because I wonder if it's behind something that I experienced. In another state, I lived in a town where none of the women would eat in each other's kitchens. Okay. Yeah. But they, but they always met every morning at the coffee shop on the corner. They would never, their, their, their friend's kosher kitchen was not good enough for them. Mm -hmm. But they would all meet at the coffee shop on the corner. Exactly. So this is how we navigate relationships. Um, Pauline, you want to add something? I just want to tell, because I always tell sometimes little negative stories, very positive story, going to um, my nephew's bar mitzvah that was being held in Florida um, by a Chabad rabbi. And I had asked my one of my sons, who is Chabad, I had forgotten to bring the, a talis with me from my nephew's bar mitzvah, and they were going to call me up this Chabad rabbi was going to call me up to the Torah, not to chant, but call me up for a blessing on the Torah, which was amazing. Um, my son would not bring me the talus. He happened to forget it. And I started getting very, very sad. And I went and I sat and I sat in the chair and I suddenly, the whole thing just poured down on me. When it was, we were about to start the service, the Chabad rabbi who had been staying at my mother's house, because they were from China, it's from my Chinese family. The Chabad rabbi came over to me and he had gotten a black, not the talus I wanted, the rainbow talus, black and white talus. He came over and he put it on my shoulders. To me, this was an the most loving, most beautiful gift I have ever gotten from Chabad. Mm -hmm. of heaven. Okay, so this, this particular rabbi was doing things for the pathways of peace, right? And the intolerance that characterizes so much and the disdain that characterizes so much of religious differences. And now 
in our country, we're also experiencing them as political sectarianism, where uh, the, the political party you belong to becomes your sect, as it were, uh, that uh, defines who you are as opposed to everybody else. I mean, it's, we're experiencing that now. Um, and yet you live in a town with idolaters. So, I mean, that's religious language, right? You have to bury them. You have to support them. You have to engage with them. You don't have to love them. You have to treat them the way you'd want to be treated for the sake of the pathways of peace. Now, we'll be able to, we can easily take this in many directions there. As uh, Roni says, keep far from, in Psalm 15, which I quoted last week, says keep far from vile people and don't associate with them. Yeah, we're not talking about being pals. We're not talking about business deals. We're not talking, it's just about how are you going to walk in the world? And when it comes to fulfilling mitzvot, in addition to the, where Rabbi Akiva says, the prime directive is love your neighbor as yourself. And Hillel says, the prime directive is what you don't, you don't want someone to do to you, don't do to someone else. The rabbis have another way of expressing it, which is figure out how you're going to walk Torah as a pathway that leads to peaceful relations between people. And yes, there are gonna be times when there's, this, this is not, even this declaration is not um, is situational. There, there will be, God forbid, situations where you can't do it this way. But until you can't do it this way, then you have to do it this way. And until you can't, then pursuing relationships in this way, even sometimes at the expense of um, some of your own self-righteousness um, uh, is considered uh, laudable, essential uh, to Jewish practice. Now, I know I've taken a bit of a journey away from that verse that I located it on, but that's what happened to me today. I got started with, they're the brothers lying again. And yet the trail of commentaries goes into this, uh, goes in this direction that it's okay sometimes um, uh, to not be completely brutally honest in order to, um, if it's not going to serve the pathways of peace. Uh, so um, when Rob says, does this mean that peace supersedes justice? It's gray. It's gray is the answer. There are two, and this, I'll conclude with this. It turns out there are two commandments, and I've talked about this before in the Torah, that it doesn't say do them, it says pursue them. It says, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice, you shall pursue. And it says in Psalm 34, bakesh shalom berat fehu, seek peace and pursue it. And the beautiful teachings about this are that these are two mitzvot that do not have a final answer, right? That pursuing justice and pursuing peace are pursuits. And we're always in pursuit of them and always um, pursuit involves walking that path, traveling that path. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's gray, but it's also, um, 
illuminating at the same time to recognize that if we wanted to just, if, if we think religion is just following the rules and we can't satisfy ourselves with this path then, because it's not just following the rules, it's walking a path. And the Hebrew word for Jewish law is halacha, which means the, the, the going, the traveling. And anyone who has a, in my opinion, a mature moral system knows that our decisions have to be made based on our core values, but applied to each situation we encounter with discernment and inquiry, and then evaluation afterwards to see if the results we'd hoped for were attained, knowing that the results we wanna obtain and the frame of reference we wanna maintain has to transcend our self-interest and be about what's good for me and for the common good. All of these require an incredible amount of balancing and weighing. And uh, um, uh, Roberta says the rabbis are encouraging us to value our impact as much as our intention. This is a learning curve of our time. Well said. All right, I've gone over a bit. Thanks for letting me explore this. Yes, we are talking about holy conscious human being based on moral core, a moral core. That's right. Uh, knowing that self, all these dualities, self and other, justice and peace, truth and uh, subjective and objective, all of it, we're constantly dancing between. Thanks a lot, everybody. That again, that's that's where the that's where the my brain went today, and I was happy to share it with you because I don't often share big chunks of Talmud with you, and I thought those pieces were really spectacular. Um, I'll be able to uh, post those on the website along with the recording for today's class. Rabbi.